welcome everybody, and especially if you're joining us at home right now, welcome to you as well. That uh, you can be joining us right now. I think it's fantastic that technology exists. Um, we are diving into a new series today, and I think many of you are aware of that. We're calling this series Grounded. Now today and in the weeks ahead, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be unpacking a number of these major doctrines of the Bible. The doctrines that we're going to study about are these essentials that we must have unity on. And as we get started here, I don't want the word doctrine. I don't want that to be a word that's confusing or intimidating to you at all. Doctrine just means teachings, teachings. So what are the essential teachings as Christians? What are the essential teachings as a church that we must have unity on? Now that is the question that's uh, on my mind, that's the question I think is on, on a lot of people's mind. What are the essential doctrines we've got to have unity on? Those things that there's no room for opinion, really. It's not like, well, the Bible says this, but I think, no, 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 there's none of that on this. This is what the Bible says. These are the essential doctrine of the Bible. Now, I can tell you that there are many reasons for why a series on doctrine is important, but can I give you just one reason today? Just one reason for why this is so important. It's because the church in America today is fast approaching the day when the major distinction between uh, churches uh, will not be their denominational affiliation. The major distinction will not be on their stylistic preferences the major distinction is not going to have anything to do with the, the type of buildings or the facilities that they worship in. No, I think we're fast approaching a day when the major distinction between churches is going to be whether that church is a biblical church or not. That's what's going to be the distinction. Now, last week I shared with you that, uh, that uh, I was listening to a sermon series from a preacher right here in northwest Arkansas who was teaching his congregation that hell is a myth and that no matter what you believe or your faith really, your practices, you're all gonna go to heaven because God's love is just that big. Do you remember me telling you about that last week? Then I hope you know that's the exact opposite of what the Bible says. That's not at all scriptural at all. But that same preacher, he also teaches that uh, Christians and Muslims worship the same God. He also teaches that evolution is a more likely scenario than the six days of creation. That God is just as thrilled with same-sex relationships as he is with, with a, a relationship between a man and a woman. He teaches that the Bible should be taken seriously, but certainly not literally. And that all faith systems of the world, all beliefs should come together for the greater good of mankind. Because at the end of the day, God's love is just big and God is loving. And what's greater than all people coming together? Then what a better representation of God's love. You know, I, 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 I think through what he's teaching his congregation and when you boil it down to it, for me, at that point, it doesn't really matter what denomination that's a part of. It doesn't really matter what style of ministry that they do, whether it's, oh, that's my style of ministry. I really like how they do that. That doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter if they've got a great building or not, if it's the best facility in Arkansas. What matters is this. That's not biblical. It's not being built on sound Bible doctrine, and ultimately, it will fail. But sadly, not before many people have been deceived, and, and sadly, even to their own potentially eternal peril. 
You know, this whole subject matter, what we're talking about, it, it brings my attention to something that the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia one time. It's found in Galatia, Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. There was something else that was being taught in these churches. And he's like, I'm astonished that you're so quickly turning to this. He said, it's really, verse 7, no gospel at all. And then he identifies some of the problems. He says, evidently, there are people out there that are throwing you into confusion. And they are trying to, here's his words, pervert the gospel of Christ. I mean, he's basically saying, listen, there is a manipulation happening here. There's something screwy going on in the church. And, and he calls it a false gospel, a no gospel, a perversion of the gospel. And then he says in verse 8, but if even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Boy, I tell you, this is some really strong language. If you mess around with God's word inappropriately, he says, like, you, you just might be under a curse. He then says, as we've already said, so I say, again, if anyone, anybody, is preaching you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. And I, man, Paul is not messing around. I'll be honest with you. I see similar things happening even today. In fact, I feel like if Paul were alive today, he might be saying some of the very same things to the churches of America that he said to the churches of Galatia. There's a different gospel being preached. There's a, this is a perversion of the gospel. It's, 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 it's not coming from, from the true source, which is God's word. In another letter that Paul wrote to a young pastor named Timothy, um, he wrote similar things. He, he wrote this letter uh, to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. He says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. In other words, something screwy is being taught in the church. And I'm going to leave you there, and I need you to fix this problem. It's definitely a problem. There's some devotion to myths and endless genealogies. And, and, and Paul says, such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. In that same letter, he also writes, chapter 4, verse 1, he said to Timothy, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, which is a clear reference to the last days in later times. We're living in the last days, friends. Some will abandon the faith and follow, listen to his description, deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Well, that sounds scary. That's what's gonna happen last days. He says such teachings come through hypocritical liars. In other words, there will be people who will be the mouthpieces for this um, deception. And Paul calls them hypocritical liars. Those whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron. In other words, you're somebody who's like, I'm gonna live my life and do my own thing. I don't want God telling me what to do. And they're in a position to manipulate in another letter to the same pastor, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4, 3, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Boy, does that not sound like today. 
Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. And I see that happening. Thousands of Christians are looking for churches that preach a message that gels with whatever lifestyle they want to live. And you know what? They can find it. They can find it. My ears want to hear something. And I will go find the preacher who will tell me what I want to hear. I see it happening today. One more. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9. The writer of Hebrews says, Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. You mean, don't let these things that are false pull you off of the foundations of what you believe, pull you away from the truth, pull you away from God's standards, pull you away from what God has deemed right or wrong. This is what he's saying. Do not be pulled away by all these strange teachings. Now, I want to be real clear. This is, this is not just a first century problem when the Bible was written here, the New Testament. And it was also a second century problem. It was also a third century problem. And I can tell you that this false teaching and manipulation of the truth has been a problem throughout all the years, all church history, and it's a problem in the 21st century. But I can tell you that uh, this is not a new problem. But from my point of view... It sure seems like it has gained a new intensity lately. Sure feels that way to me. So the question becomes, how do we combat this? Okay, well, are we just defenseless? How do we combat this? Well, of course we're not defenseless. For starters, what we need to do as Christians is we must be grounded in the core doctrines of the Bible. We've got to know what we believe. We've got to know why we believe it. And we've got to understand that it comes from God's word. That is the source of what we believe and why we believe it. Being grounded in the core teachings of the Bible, well, that, my friends, is what sets your entire Christian life in the right direction. In fact, if we're not properly grounded in them, the chances of us being led astray by something that is false or being deceived by something that kind of sounds right but isn't, well, if we're not grounded in the core doctrine of the Bible, then the opportunity for deception, it increases exponentially. Let me give you an example. How many of you remember, this might date me just a little bit, how many of you remember this book right here, The Da Vinci Code? Anybody read this book? I read it. It's a page turner, let me tell you. This came out a few years ago, and then when this thing hit the shelves, I mean, it was flying off the shelves. People were reading this book like crazy. And then, uh, I don't remember how much, a couple years later, Tom Hanks made a movie called The Da Vinci Code. Did you see that? Boy, I tell you, by the time the book had made its circulation and that movie was all around the world, there were really millions of people that had been introduced to The Da Vinci Code. And, and like I said, it's a fascinating work of fiction. I mean, it's the story of this big secret. I'm about to blow the whole story for you, so sorry. Plug your ears if you think you want to read this later. The whole story is about this secret that has been hidden away for years and years in the artwork of Da Vinci. And that secret is this, that Jesus got married and he had children and his offspring are still alive today. Wow. Now, just for clarity's sakes, and I don't want there to be any misunderstanding, that's not what the Bible says, okay? That is completely opposite of God's word. But, but you know what's really interesting? And it's sad, really. It's a sad, interesting thing. That when this book came out and the movie was made and, and millions of people were being introduced to it, 
we started hearing things like this among the church and among in Christian circles and people were writing about it. Christians were saying things like this. Now, I didn't know that Jesus was married. I was never taught that Jesus got married. And we started hearing things like, man, um, I didn't know Jesus had children, but what if Jesus had children? Would their offspring have Jesus's powers? And there was all this kind of conversation, so much so that uh, other books started to be written and published. Here's one. This one's called The Da Vinci Deception. Um, 100 questions about the facts and fiction of the Da Vinci Code. It was try to rebuttal some of the questions. Here's another one. This one's called, the same title, The Da Vinci Deception, written by a pastor named Erwin Lutzer. Maybe you're familiar with him, pretty well-known guy. It's The Da Vinci Deception, credible answers to the questions millions are asking about Jesus, the Bible, and the Da Vinci Code. There was enough conversation about this in my previous congregation that I served up in Kansas City that I felt compelled to preach a three-week-long series that I called The Da Vinci Code, The Truth Behind the Fiction. And hundreds of preachers, just like me, preached other series in their church. And maybe you remember back then where they tried to debunk the false teaching of The Da Vinci Code that was confusing a lot of Christians. And isn't it a sad testimony that we had to do any of it? Isn't that a sad testimony of the church? That preachers felt like they needed to set the record straight and Christian authors had to publish work that said this isn't true? Being grounded, let me just tell you friends, being grounded helps you see the truth and not be deceived by the fake. That's what being grounded does. It helps you be protected from being deceived. It's, it's, it's your way of understanding this is of God and this, there's no way this can be of God. And it becomes obvious because you're so grounded in the real doctrine of the Bible, the real truth. Being grounded is like what Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter four, where he talks about this kind of grounding um, leads to maturity and unity among the body of Christ, and you grow in this knowledge of God, and it produces all of these things. And, and I just want you to know, when you're grounded, and you are maturing in your faith, and you are absorbing God's word, and your knowledge of God is growing, and, and th there's something that Paul said happens to a Christian when they get to that point. In fact, in, in Ephesians chapter four, verse 14, this is what happens. When you are filled with the knowledge of God and growing and maturing, he says, then you, you no longer be tossed, no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful schemings. In other words, when you know God's word, you're not gonna be deceived. You're not gonna be tossed around. You're not gonna be like a little baby Christian anymore. No, 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 no. This is a different place where you're at. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. So if I'm not being clear enough, let me say it again. We have to be grounded because there's just too much at stake today for us not to be. So let's dive right in today to this first core doctrine of the Bible, and it's this. What does the Bible teach us about God? Now, you know what the short answer is to that question? A lot. What does the Bible teach us about God? A lot. Are we gonna cover it all today? 
No, but what we will cover is these foundational truths of God found in the Bible that forms our doctrine about God. Now, I want to let you know, I am about to flood you with a whole lot of Scripture. I don't expect you to be able to turn as I go. It's going to happen too fast. So I want you to know that in your app, every Scripture that I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to read today is going to be in your app. So you can go back and look at the main points that I'm going to try to share with you today are all going to be in your app. And you can go back there as a reference and it's under the sermon notes icon. You can follow along, whatever. But I just want to give a heads up. You don't need to write super fast. I'd rather just listen and absorb. It's all there for you and it's not going anywhere. So that's all in the app. But I'm going to give you a lot. When I turned in all my information for this sermon to the to our team that makes all of this happen, I got a text back and said, that's a lot. That's a lot this week. And, and it was in jest. It was fun. And my response was, well, you, you can't talk about what the Bible says and what the Bible teaches without sharing what the Bible teaches. It kind of makes sense, right? So I, I, you're going to get a tidal wave about to come at you. But uh, believe me, you can handle it. and It's all in the app. Now, if I were to ask you this question, or if somebody were to come up to you and ask you this question, and they were to say, hey, tell me everything you know about God, what words would you use? How would you describe God to that person? Or maybe another way to look at it, if somebody were to come up to you and say, hey, tell me why you would get up early on a Sunday morning and, and go to a church and, 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 and worship, sing songs, pray, have communion, listen to a sermon, what is it about God that would, that would make you wanna do that? What would you tell them? Or maybe somebody handed you a pen and a sheet of paper, a blank sheet of paper, and said, hey, write down everything you know about God on this piece of paper. I wonder, could you fill up that paper? How much of that paper could you fill up? You know, the Bible introduces us to God in the very first words of the Bible. Do you remember what they are? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. That's how the Bible starts. Now here's the interesting observation. You know the Bible doesn't try to prove the existence of God. It really doesn't. I mean, when you read the Bible, there's an assumption being made that the one who reads the Bible already accepts the fact that there is a God. The existence of God is an understood fact of the Bible. Psalms chapter 14 verse one says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And you know, I think Christians understand that verse better than, than non-believers at this point. Because as a Christian, you remember what it was like when you weren't walking with God. And now that you're on this side of salvation, you're on this side of conversion, and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you look back and go, that is so true. It is foolish to say there is no God because of what we've experienced. Now, somebody hasn't made that trek yet, may not connect like that, but the Bible says this to us. A fool says in his heart, there is no God. This is not original with me, but I seem to say it all the time. You probably heard me say it, and it's this. If you can believe the first five words of the Bible, in the beginning, God created. If you believe the first five words of the Bible, I mean, really believe it, then you should have trouble, you should not have trouble believing anything else that the Bible says. Now think about that. If I can believe and accept the first five words of the Bible, in the beginning, God created. 
then I should have no problem believing anything else the Bible says. If I believe that, then I should have no problem also believing that God could talk to somebody through a burning bush or that God could part a mighty sea. If I can believe the first five words of the Bible, in the beginning God created, then I should have no trouble believing that God could make a fish so big that it could swallow a man and keep him in his belly for three days and then vomit him out on the shore. If I believe the first five words of the Bible, in the beginning God created, then I should have no trouble also believing that God would raise his son from the dead. You know, this is a series about doctrine. Not necessarily a series about apologetics, which is the fancy word for the defense of your faith, the study of the defense of your faith. It's about doctrine, not just apologetics, but I can tell you that there is overwhelming evidence for the existence of God. Let me just quickly give you four. Four quick evidences for the existence of God. How do I know that God exists? Well, number one, the Bible reveals it to us. The Bible says, in the beginning, God, the Bible tells us. So if you just read the Bible, there's a revelation that there's a God, he loves us, he is real, and the Bible's all about our Heavenly Father who we call God. The Bible reveals that to us. But beyond that, reason teaches it. Reason teaches that there's a God. You know, we believe, we don't question at all today, the, the, the law of cause and effect. Okay, we don't question that at all. There's a cause and effect to everything. So if our world that we live in, if that's the effect, then what's the cause? That's a question we have to wrestle with. What caused this world, the law of cause and effect? Did this world, this whole universe, did it just come into existence by chance? That's what a lot of people would want you to believe. Just by accident. Two asteroids or whatever collided a trillion years ago and this is what the result was. Did nothing produce something? Or is there a mastermind behind all of this? Reason teaches us, reason seems to point to that there is a cause to all of this. Hebrews chapter three, verse four tends to back this up. It says this, for every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Here's another evidence that we can point to. Supreme intelligence indicates that there is a God, supreme intelligence. You know, when you see this huge, beautiful mansion, our intellect says there was an architect. You know, when, when you listen to some incredible music out there, our intellect says what? There's gotta be a composer. Somebody created that. When you, when you look at our, our world, then the, it says, it shouts, there is a creator. This, all of this together, there had to be a creator. Now, I'm gonna throw some numbers at you that are kind of gonna blow you away. How much do you think the earth weighs? I'll tell you what they think it weighs. This is the number right here. The earth weighs six sectillion, 570 quintillion tons. That's a big scale. Uh, how do they figure that out? I have no idea. I couldn't tell you how they figured that out, but that's what they say the earth weighs. The earth's dimensions are 8,000 miles in diameter, 25,000 miles in circumference, yet the earth is more accurate in its movements than the finest, most delicate, expensive watch you can buy today. Did you know that? The earth travels 
over 595 million miles in the course of a year as it goes around the sun, yet it does not vary in the length of time it takes to make one revolution around the sun, even by one second. It's never fluctuated. It's perfect. In fact, if it would change by even half a second, do you realize that that would be the biggest news that this world has ever seen? But it's not going to. Scientific headlines would be all over the world. The, the earth took half a second longer to get around the sun this year. All of that points to a creator who is wise and is powerful. And it's the most likely answer. There is a God. And you know, one final proof I would say is this. Nature proves it. Nature proves there's a God. Psalm 19.1 says this. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And we just look up at the sky and you're gonna see there is a God out there. Romans chapter one, verse 20 says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. In other words, what the apostle Paul is writing here is that, you know, you can look around at all creation around you and there's enough there that when you stand before God one day, you're not gonna have the excuse of, I didn't know. There's something points to it. Something points to God. I don't know about you, I love taking long walks on the beach. Do you like that? Watching the sun go down, looking over the ocean. Not, not Avalon Beach, there's not enough beach there to. I'm talking about the ocean and the sun coming down. I'm telling you, you can't stand on the shore of the ocean and watch the sun go down and at least not contemplate that there is a God. Have you ever taken a nice long hike through the woods? I know many of us have done that. The Bible seems to indicate that you look around, all that's been made, that experience should say something to you that there's gotta be a God out there. I've had the privilege of going to some really beautiful places in my life. I've walked through the Sequoia National Forest and those giant, massive trees, and I've stood at the base of what is considered the world's largest tree, and you look up and you go, there's got to be a God. I've stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon, I've looked out the vastness of it and the beauty of it, and you can't help but contemplate who created all this. Somebody had to make this. I've, uh, I've driven around Yellowstone National Park. I got to watch a grizzly bear eat a buffalo. That was pretty awesome. From a long way away, mind you. You watch that and you go, there's gotta be a God. I've driven throughout, all throughout the Rocky Mountains and the trip that my wife and I tend to take at least once a year. We have friends out in Colorado and, and we leave uh, Denver and we drive I-70 west through the Rocky Mountains and through Glenwood Canyon. And if you've ever made that drive, it's one of the most beautiful drives you'll ever do in your life. And when we get into the Rockies, we always turn on the praise and worship music and we sing and it drives our boys nuts, but we sing our praises to God because how can you not? I've stood on the coast of Oregon and looked out the rocky shores. And in fact, I've driven all up and down the coast of California through Oregon and into Washington. Some of the most beautiful scenery you're gonna see. And it just points to a creator. I've been to numerous places in the Caribbean and the Bahamas and I've swum, swam with sea turtles off the coast of Barbados. And it tells me there is a God. I've sat by the quiet streams all by myself with my Bible off the beaten path. And I've also stood on the deck of a boat and looked up to the mighty raging waterfalls of Niagara. And I know 
that there is a God. And the Bible tells me, Joe, if that's all you knew, it's enough. And you will stand before God one day and you will not be able to say, I didn't know. I didn't know. Without excuses. So the Bible tells us that God exists. Reason, because God gave us minds. Reason tells us that things had to have caused, something caused this. It didn't just happen by accident. Intelligent design shows us that God is the one that did this. And nature reminds us that God created something very beautiful. But it's the Bible. It's the Bible that reveals God to us. Those are just evidences for God's existence. But it's the Bible that reveals God to us. It tells us what God is like. It tells us about all of God's attributes. And I'll be honest with you, I won't have time to list all the attributes of God, but I'm gonna list some of the biggies for you today. The first attribute of God that the Bible tells us about is this, God is holy. God is holy. The word holy means set apart or separated. So we ask the question, what is God separated from? Well, obviously, God is separated from sin. That's what the Bible tells us. Evil. He's not going to have anything to do with it. That's not what he's about because there's no evil inside of God. So he is separated from those things. He is holy. And you know, this is one of the greatest distinctions about God, the one true God over all the false gods that mankind made. Because when a man makes a God, a little g God, a false God, when, when, when man creates a God, he creates a God who is also sinful and who is also weak like mankind is. Have you noticed that? If you study Greek mythology, if you spend time reading about it, you'll see the sinful nature of the gods on Mount Olympus. And that these created gods out of, man's, out of man's brain, these creative gods are really no different than sinful man. I never thought about it before like this until somebody pointed it out to me. But that when man creates a god, like a little g god, a false god, he does not create one that will ever condemn him of his sins. You know why? Because mankind does not create holy gods. That's a unique attribute to the one true God. Leviticus 19.2 says, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 through 16 says, As obedient children, in other words, the church, as those of us who are saved by God's grace in his family, as obedient children of God, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you once lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So our God is holy. His expectation of his children is that we are gonna be like God. That we are going to strive to be separate from sin and identify with God on this other holy level. That's one of the main attributes of God. You know what the Bible tells us? The Bible tells us that God is love. God is love. This, this might just be the supreme attribute of God. 1 John 4, 8 says that whoever does not love does not know God. Man, you have to sit down and wrestle with that one for a minute. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, we're, we'll get into this more as we get deeper in this series, but we've got to ask the question, if God is love, then how in the world does he express that love to the world? Well, the Bible's very clear on this, that, that one of the greatest expressions of God's love to the world is seen through Jesus Christ. When you boil it down to it, how did God show his love? 
through Jesus. You know how I know that? Because the Bible says it just that plainly. 1 John 4, 9 says, this is how God showed his love among us. This is how he did it. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God is love. He showed it through Jesus. And we'll get more into that as we get deeper into this series. God's love is shown through his care. God's love is shown through his forgiveness. It's God's love that inspires us. It inspires love in us. God's love. When, when you show love, you, you are aligned with God in a sense. And like I said, we'll get more into this. First John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. Do you know what sets Christianity apart from every other world religion that's out there today? You know what makes Christianity unique completely? Is that we worship a God and we find salvation. And we are saved, not by what we do for God, but we are saved because of what God has already done for us. Do you realize how unique that is? There's not another religion in the world that teaches that. No, 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 you are saved in other faiths by how much work you do for God and how you earn your salvation. And if you can appease this God, he might bless you with something beyond. That's not our God. Christianity stands alone as the only world religion where we are saved not by what we do for God, but by what God has already done for us. God loves us and he showed that love by sending his son as an atoning sacrifice for us. The Bible says that God is merciful. That God is merciful. What is mercy? Or what does it mean to be shown mercy? It's when we deserve a punishment but none comes because the offended party decided to extend us some grace and not punish us. So that's being shown mercy. And God in the Bible is described in such a way. In fact, God's love and God's mercy are intertwined in the Bible. In fact, I'll show you. Ephesians chapter two, verse four through five says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy. In other words, you deserve punishment, but I'm not gonna punish you. I'm gonna extend you some grace. So because of his great love for us, that's the reason, because he loved us. How did he show it? Through Jesus. So because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in this kind of mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. God is merciful. You know what else the Bible tells us? The Bible tells us that God is all-powerful. There's a word uh, that we attach to that called omnipotence. He's an omnipotent God. He is all-powerful. Genesis 17:1 says, I am God Almighty. That's what he says. What does almighty mean? It means all-powerful. Matthew 19:26 says, With God, all things are possible. The Bible also tells us he can do immeasurably more than all we hope or seek. God is all-powerful. You don't know how powerful God is? It should not surprise us that when somebody gets a medical diagnosis and is like, all hope is lost, there's nothing else we can do, and the church comes around that person and prays over that person, and that person is healed, and the doctor's like, we don't know what happened. And we say, we know what happened. 
Our God is all powerful. That's how it happened. The Bible also tells that God is all knowing. It's the word we attach to that is omniscient. Psalm 147.5 says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. God knows everything. <laughs> and we're like, oh, we wish he didn't. We wish he didn't know everything that went through this heart mind, but he does. You can't hide from God. You can't hide your thoughts from God. God knows everything about you. And sometimes I have to remind myself, and I'll remind you too, that you know what? Even if you don't think he can, he knows your name. He knows where you live. He knows everything about you. There's not one thing that ever escapes his notice. So why do we try? He's all-knowing. And right along with that, the Bible also says that God is everywhere all at the same time. That word is omnipresent, omnipresent. Listen to what Jeremiah, what he, he declared, Jeremiah 23, what God was saying. He says, am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in the secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Do you understand what this means? It means that God is present with us right here as we've worshiped him and we've read about him in his word. And at the same time, he is halfway around the world with some Christians in China who are meeting in secret because their lives are on the line. And he can be just as present and both as, as just as engaged in both locations because he is omnipresent. He's everywhere all at the same time. What it means is that he'll be right there with you in your darkest moment when you don't know if you can go another day. You don't know if you've got anything left in you to see this thing through. He's right there with you with the Holy Spirit spurring you along saying you can do it. And at the same time, halfway around the world, holding back the hurricane that's gonna destroy people. That's because God can be everywhere at once and just as engaged and involved all at the same time because he's all knowing, he's all powerful and he is everywhere. That's our God. That's who we worship. That, that, that's the God of the heavens. That's, that's our God. And finally, the Bible says that God is, God is faithful. God is faithful. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. He's faithful. You know, God, God didn't reveal himself to us so that we can know a lot about him. God didn't reveal himself just so we can know a lot about him. No, no, no. He reveals himself to us so that we can truly get to know him. This is this Bible doctrine stuff that we're talking about with God. The essential thing. What do we believe? What do we understand about God? Who is he? We don't have that information just so we can have facts. No, no, no. God wants you to know him personally. And that also is what separates Christianity from every other world religion in the world. There's no other world religion where God wants to know you. And God wants to have a relationship with you. So not only are we saved by what God has done for us, we can move about through life knowing our God because he wants to know you. Now look at Jeremiah 29, verse 23. This is what the Lord says. 
Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and he knows me. I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. It's like saying, if you're gonna brag about something, if you wanna, you wanna puff up and be all like, you know what I am? If you wanna boast, God says, boast about this, that we know each other. That's it, if you can boast about that, is there anything else that can compare? Let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and he knows me, that I am the Lord. So just kind of quick review. God, what does the Bible teach us? That God created everything. That God is holy. That God is love. God is merciful. God is all powerful. God is all knowing. God is everywhere all at the same time. And God is faithful. And so then the question from all of this is, well, what am I supposed to do with all that? I mean, I mean what, what, am I, I, what am I supposed to do now? I think Ecclesiastes 12, 13 sums it up about as clear as anywhere in the Bible. It says this, now that all has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. God loves me, God's everywhere, He's all-powerful, all-knowing. God's all these things. I know he's real. I can see it in nature. My mind reasons it out, cause it. I, what do I do? Fear God. Obey him. Or I say live for him. It's the greatest duty of mankind. Let me pray for you. Dear God, I just thank you, Lord, that you so clearly reveal yourself in Scripture. And Lord, when I think about what can I not, I mean, what can I not get wrong? What has to be? What, what, what do I got to get right, Lord? Lord, I got to get right with you. Lord, I need to be square with you. My highest duty, the greatest thing I can do is to know you and to fear you and to obey you. It's the highest calling. It's the highest duty that I have as a person. Lord, may that be true of every single one of us in this room today. And Lord, as we try to weave and navigate through life and we are bombarded with things that aren't true and are false, Lord, help us to come back to the truth of who you are and what you're doing in the world and what you want more than anything else is to have a relationship with me. Lord, ground us in this truth. Ground us in these truths about you. Lord, may we not compromise. May we never move off that foundation of who you are and your love and mercy for us. Now you showed it through your son, Jesus Christ, so that we might live for all eternity. And may the highest duty, the highest calling in our life be to fear you, to obey you, 
Lord, may we not show up on the day of judgment and you ever say to us, I don't know you. And may we never be in a position of saying, God, I didn't know you. Oh, Lord, help us. Teach us, God. Show us the way. In Jesus' name, amen.